So let's pray and uh, we'll jump right in. Father, thank you for the uh, address that we heard earlier from Mike. Thank you for your word. Thank you that it is life and joy. Thank you that you um, engage with us as responsible human agents, that as we make choices to be in the word, or, as we'll discuss in this session, expose our families to your word, uh, you transform our hearts. I pray that that would happen in this session. Thank you for the privilege of meeting with these brothers and discussing these things. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So yeah, my wife and I have five children. Andre and I have been married for, uh, it'll be 23 years in a couple of months. Uh, our kids are all teenagers right now, all five of them. So Devin is 19, Justin's 18, Braden's 16, Landon just turned 15, and Julie is 13. So we have four boys, and then we finally had a girl. That's in part why we have five kids. We kept trying to have a girl. So, um, so I think parenting is probably the hardest thing that we do, or that I do. Um, and it can be one of the easiest things to neglect, because often it is the most... Um, uh, the returns come in the slowest. Uh, your, your church can you know, love and adore you, or the people on your job can think you're amazing, and you come home and you're just a dude, you know, and you're not getting all the accolades and such. So I just want to start with a quick thought from an obscure text of Scripture, and then jump in for most of our time to a more familiar text. Uh, but let's start in Genesis 5. And what I want to do from Genesis 5 is just highlight the importance of this task um, of parenting. So get to Genesis 5, right there in the opening pages of your Bible, and tell me what you see in Genesis 5. Well, in the whole chapter. Just let your eyes skim through that whole chapter. What do you see there? Lots of names, lots of years, right? Lots of repetition. The formula is virtually the same. Of course, Enoch's appearance is different. So that might stand out to you. Um, The simple point that I want to emphasize to you is we have 1,700 years of human history here, if these years are meaningful. Uh, We have 1,700 years of human history. Um, That is more time than almost all the rest of the Bible combined from Exodus to the time of Christ is about 1,400 years. So we have a huge chunk of time here. And what do we know about these guys that feature, that are featured in this genealogy? We know their name. We know they died. Yep. And we know they had kids. That's it. That's all we got. And, um, whoa. Whoa using magnets to get my Bible up. We, um, that's all we've got about these guys. We have no idea whether they were rich or poor. We have no idea whether their career went the way they hoped or didn't. Were they bald or did they have dreadlocks? Did they have uh, uh, a big house or a little house? What were their hobbies? What were their entertainments? How was their health? I mean, presumably good, because they lived hundreds of years, right? But we just don't know anything about these guys other than they had children. Uh, you know, 
you could put, now that's not the main point of this chapter. This chapter is functioning differently in Genesis. But what we can glean from this is that uh, we will all die and our kids carry on. Which means that so many of the things that we spend most of our time obsessing over will be completely forgotten in a generation or two. And the things that we tend to marginalize or take for granted or sometimes um, overlook in pursuit of those other things are the only things that last beyond us. Our children. Uh, To just put it more pointedly, can you even name the names of your ancestors three generations from you? Can you name your great-grandparents' names? Guys, that's going to be your story in three generations. No one's going to remember you. Nothing about you. Not even your name. Except the fact that you had kids. And because you had kids, and then they had kids, and then they had kids. Hey, I exist. Thanks to my great-grandparents. So this is the part of our life that endures. Now again, in eternity and in God's economy, not a single thing we do, even a cup of cold water given in Jesus' name, doesn't lose its reward. But in terms of you know, the memorable things of your life in human history, having kids is it. So I just want to point that out to sort of ratchet up the importance of what we're doing in parenting our kids. And then endeavor to try to do this well. Such a difficult and challenging calling. So let me flip let me draw your attention uh, to Deuteronomy chapter 6, this classic passage where the Lord instructs his people about parenting. And here's, my, my talk is the uh, sufficiency of scripture for, I think Jeff has in the, in the notes, training your family or something like this. The way I think of it, the way I worded it in my notes, discipling your children. The sufficiency of the word for discipling your children. And I want to develop it from Deuteronomy 6 in three points or three principles. The word is sufficient to define your calling and duties, your method. The word is sufficient to tell you what to do as a parent. And secondly, I want to point out from this passage just more briefly than the first point. The word is sufficient to make you what you should be for this task. And then thirdly, the word is sufficient to produce in our children everything that's most important in them. So we're going to see all that from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Let's look at these verses. Verses 1 through 9 is what I want to read. Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. 
And you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So the word is sufficient to establish my parenting goals, the task, to describe for me what my job is as a parent. I want you to notice in this passage and just point it out to us. Let's just kind of do this together. All the language for the Bible, all the terms, the phrases, the commands even, that orient to the scriptures. What do you see in this passage that fits in that category? Point it, point it out to us. Tell us the phrase or the, or the term and the verse that it's in. Verse 1, commandments, statutes. Yep, commandments, statutes, rules. Okay, good, right there in verse 1. Yep, there's more in verse 1. What else? Okay, good. Yep, the Lord commanded. Obviously, the, the speaking of God. What else? Don't be shy. Just holler it out. Still in verse 1? Or? Or wherever. Okay. Yep. Verse 2, keeping all his statutes and commandments. Okay, good. Yep. Verse 2, keeping statutes, commandments. Be careful to do them. Good. Be careful to do them. Where's that? Verse 3. Yep. Okay, excellent. Yep, these words that I command you. Yep. Yep, exactly. Here. Did you notice that? Here. Both of those verses. Get your ears open. There's a word here for you. What else? Okay, good. Yeah, verse 7. Teach them. What else is there in verse 7, Pierre? Talk of them. Mm-hmm. Similarly, verse 8, bind them. Verse 9, write them. The central responsibility of a parent is to get the Bible into our kids. Get the Word of God into our kids. This is it. So here's the, here's the claim of my whole session here, my whole talk. Um, Expose your kids to the Bible and good things will happen. That's, that's my talk. <laughs> Expose your kids to the Bible and good things happen. Essentially, Christian parenting boils down to... Now, there's a, I don't want to confuse the means and the end. The, the, the goal of Christian parenting is not to expose your kids to parenting. That's a means... Or expose your kids to the Bible. That's a means to an end. And we'll talk in a moment about what the goal is, what the end is, that God's Word is sufficient to form in our kids everything we want or everything that's most important. So we'll talk about that in a moment, what these effects are. But here, it's just this. You just get the Bible into them. Um, you, you, you expose them to the Bible, which is a way of saying you introduce them to God. God's ways, God's words, God's character, the joy and delight that we can find in God, particularly, particularly His goodness. I mean, look at what He's offering these people. He's giving them a land. He's giving them 
life, long life, verse 2. He's offering them that it may go well with you, that you may multiply greatly, a land of milk and honey. And, and this, of course, is familiar terminology to us because if you're familiar with the Bible, you're familiar with a God who is good. There are no other gods like that. None. Archaeologists have yet to uncover any ancient praise songs to Molech for his goodness. There are none. There are no praise songs to Chemosh or Baal about his loving kindness. There are no gods that are good like this God that give gifts to their people. This is our job as parents. This is a great job. We just expose our kids to the Bible. But notice all the different ways that we expose kids to the Bible. Verses 7, 8, 9. I just want to kind of dwell here a little bit and talk about this. We want to introduce our kids to God. We want to get the words of the Bible around them, but not just in one way. There's several ways. Verse 7, you shall teach them diligently to your children. Okay, so there's moral instruction. Then verses 8 and 9, or I guess the rest of verse 7, and, and, and you should pick that up there. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. So that's not as, as much straightforward moral instruction. That's more moral discourse. You're, you're just interacting with kids in everyday life about the worldview of the Bible, the, the, the interpretive grid of the Bible on this moment. Moral instruction, teach them. Moral discourse, talk about this back and forth. And then verses 8 and 9, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, frontlets between your eyes, write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. I think all of this is metaphorical. There's that as and like language in there. The point is, um, the way I've termed it, moral structures, uh, family structures that are... um, priorities and habits and rituals that we perform as a family that orient us to the worldview, the truth of the Bible, the ways and words of God. So, so really, the, the picture I want you to have in your minds is of an ecosystem. Because that's what a family is supposed to be. A moral ecology. You want to create a moral ecology in your family that, you know what an ecology, an, an ecosystem is. I mean, from biology, right? An ecosystem is an, um, an eco, ecology is a study between organisms and their environment. And an ecosystem is this, this whole um, self-sustaining, complete environment. It's got um, interdependence and it's organic. Uh, you know, one life form will... will live for a while and die, and then its death nourishes the other pieces of this ecosystem. So it's interdependent, it's self-propagating, it's diverse and balanced. There's a lot going on in an ecosystem, and that's sort of the picture here of a family. There's moral instruction, times when we read the Bible to our children. Tell them the verses, the words of the Bible. Mike talked about this. You know, his mom said over and over, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, straight moral instruction. And then there are Times where there's moral discourse and back and forth. And then there's moral um, structures in the family life that just orient. The, the nature of a talk like this is it's just got to be specific and practical. And um, 
I think I've failed at parenting as much as any other area of my life, probably more. I feel more burden about parenting. And so I don't want you to think, oh man, he's giving us these examples because he thinks, you know, his parenting's been great. I think my parenting has really, really um, cost my kids in certain ways. Whatever good is in their lives is by God's grace. But I'll try to tell you some things that we've tried to do in these areas. And I know some of you brothers are doing these things and we could probably all share good ideas here. But this first thing, verse 7, beginning of verse 7, you shall um, teach them diligently to your children. The most important thing you can do in this category is read the Bible to your children. Read them the Bible. We got the Bible on CD, I think probably in the NIV when our kids were little. When they would cry at night and be awake in the middle of the night, we'd pop in a CD and just play the words of the Bible. Um, And at other times, just try to play the Bible for them and have it being spoken into their lives. We read it as a family. When they were little, we would read um, primarily the narrative passages and start in the Old Testament and read a chapter. Just read Genesis 1 and the next day Genesis 2. And all of Genesis is narrative, and a good portion of Exodus is narrative, and a good portion of Numbers is narrative, and then, of course, Joshua and Judges and Ruth. These are all narratives, and they're stories, and kids are drawn to that, and you can just sit with your family. My biggest regret, two biggest regrets in uh, this part of parenting are making it too complex and then falling apart and just not doing it. Just the the most... and, And we've continued... To this day, now, when the kids got into middle school and high school, we would start reading Proverbs. And uh, we'd read a proverb around the dinner table. When the kids were little, we did it in the morning. They seemed to have more attention in the morning. And before I headed off to the office, gather the kids, read a chapter of the Bible, pray, go. When I tried to do more complex stuff, this didn't work as well. I tried to, you know, okay, um, you get to lead us tonight and you ask three questions of this passage. And the kid's like, ah, I got homework. How can I, you know, I'm, I'm just, my brain is not there right now. Um, just read them the Bible. And brothers, you will be amazed at the delightful conversations you will have later because you've been exposing your kids to the Bible in areas you know you need to talk with your kids. But I mean, like, how am I going to bring this up? So, like, here's a story. We were reading through Genesis. My kids are fairly young. And we got to uh, Genesis 19, which is an amazing and marvelous story of the holiness and justice of God. It's where Sodom and Gomorrah are, um, are finally destroyed. There's the patience of God and the mercy of God demonstrated in that story. And then you get to the end of the chapter, and it's this sordid, awful story of Lot and his daughters. And so we get to the end of Genesis 19, and I just said to my kids, so the rest of this chapter is about sex, so let's just pray, and um, we'll uh, head off to school. And so we pray and go our way. And I just felt like, nah, that wasn't the right way to handle that. I mean, am I going to protect my kids from the Bible? What's going on? I, I don't, I'm, this is not a good plan. So we keep reading Genesis, and, and we come to, of course, just a few you know, chapters later, we come to Judah. And Tamar. And then the very next chapter, Joseph and Potiphar's wife. And I'm like, okay, here we go. Chance to redeem myself, you know. And so I said to my kids, and again, they're, you know, my oldest was probably 10. I said to my kids, hey, um, 
couple of weeks ago, we were reading that story and I said, the rest of this chapter is about sex, so we're not going to read that. That was a wrong way for me to handle that. So here are our three family rules about sex. And we have said this now scores of times. Because you keep reading the Bible and the sex is going to come up, right? This is a topic in the scriptures that we need to engage our kids on. And it's awkward. How am I going to bring that up? Hey, uh... So you ever notice one animal on top of another animal, right? I mean, you get a book, you have a ceremony, people do it different ways. I'm like, just read the Bible. and then. So here are our three family rules about sex. Number one, the Bible talks about sex, so we as a family will talk about sex. That's not a taboo subject. It's not going to be off limits. It's not dark and dirty. You know, I mean, we don't want to send the Christian message, you know, sex is a really secret, dark, dirty subject, so save it for someone you love, right? Why are we going to do that? That's probably not the right approach. The Bible talks about sex, so we will talk about sex. Rule number two, your friends will talk about sex all the time, and everything they tell you is wrong. You seem to know that. And rule number three, you can come to mom or dad and ask any question, tell us anything that happened, um, uh, talk about anything related to the subject, and we will not get mad at you. So from that point on, every time we came to one of these stories that, you know, we're reading Proverbs 5 or reading the Ten Commandments and adultery comes up or, I mean, just... As you're reading the Bible to your kids, these subjects come up. Let the Bible set the agenda. That's moral instruction. You're just reading them the Bible, getting the Bible into them. A lot of other ways to do that. We've just, now we do it after dinner, and we're reading the Gospels. And then I read a, a, a chapter from Spurgeon's Morning and Evening, and we pray. Moral discourse, verse 7 Talk of them when you sit, when you walk, when you lie down, when you rise. Um, we, we, of course, this sort of stuff comes up in everyday life. Kids ask questions. You want to talk to them about these things. and um, So there are all sorts of examples from that. But I, I want to try to create these discussions. My kids go to public school, and um, they're exposed to all sorts of crazy stuff there. And so at dinner, I would try to come once a week or so, with an apologetic, I, I, different nights of the week would be sort of a different family activity at dinner time. But uh, once a week or so, I'd try to bring an apologetics question, especially as my kids got older, of course. Uh, so, you know, one Monday night, years ago, sat down with the kids and said, hey, so um, obviously we've built our whole life on the existence of God and the truth of Christianity. But let's just step back from that for a moment and talk about this. How do you even know God exists? What do you guys think? What if a friend asked you, hey, you're a Christian, why do you believe in God? I mean, science seems to have all the answers. What do you say? So we just chatted about this around the dinner table. And I let my kids give their answers, and I thought some of their answers were good, and it was interesting to see some of them just sort of struggle a little and, and, and interact with each other. And then I had, you know, a couple of what I hoped would be memorable and compelling thoughts. I'm not only equipping, what I'm trying to do is not only equip my kids to talk with their friends, I'm actually trying to establish in them the credibility of this claim. You know, I'm I'm at that moment evangelizing my children again with these truths. I'm just trying to create some space for moral discourse, for for back and forth and discussion. Um, My daughter, you know, I got one girl, (laughs) and... uh, Every time when she was little, we would be together, weeding the garden, or she'd be riding with me, going somewhere. From the time she was super little, I would say to her, hey, Julia, 
If any boy says to you, will you be my girlfriend? You have two questions. Question number one, and you ask him these questions. Question number one is, do you love Jesus? If he says yes, then he gets question two. Question two is, do you have a job so you can buy me a house? (laughs) And if he can't answer yes to that, then he's not ready to be your boyfriend. So we did this from the time she was just a little squirt. Now she's in middle school and she has boys asking. She's adorable. She's a lovely girl. She's got four boys, so she's not enamored with boys. Guys like that, right? When girls are just free and open with them and comfortable, but they think that's flirting. So she says to me a couple of uh, months ago, Daddy? No, no, this, okay. So years ago when she's in like, you know, I don't know, fourth grade, she goes, Daddy, why do I need to have a boyfriend who has a job? He's only in fourth grade. And I said, that's right. He is only in fourth grade. (laughs) So why does he need a girlfriend? That's the point. Ah, Trying to form in her this expectation about, you know, what dating and courtship and romantic relationships are for. Well, now she's sort of swung the other way. I've noticed this pendulum swing in her where she tells me, hey, Dad, I had a boy ask me to the, um, whatever, some kind of dance they had at their middle school. I had a boy ask me to that middle school, and I went, no. I'm like, oh, okay, wow. So now I need to have some moral discourse with her, and we need to talk about how to be respectful. How, how to, how to, how to, how to be gentle with this guy. And I said, Jew, you need to understand when a boy comes to you and asks you out, he's holding his heart in his hands and he's just right here in front of you going, you can tell me right now if you think I'm worth anything. <laughs> and so, and what if he's not a Christian? You don't want him later to find out that you're a Christian and go, I don't want to be a Christian. She was so mean to me. So you need to figure out a way to be kind and respectful and say, oh, thank you. That was so, I, I'm so... Um, it makes me feel so good that you would want to hang out with me at this event. But I don't think I'm ready for that or whatever, you know. I mean, so we're trying to talk through just, again, creating space in their life to do back and forth moral discourse. The, my boys went to see the Endgame, you know, Avengers movie. And so we talk about, okay, what's the worldview of this thing and back and forth. And so doing that kind of moral discourse, creating space for that. And then moral structures, verses 8 and 9. Bind them as a sign. Write them on the doorposts. Family priorities and habits that orient their life to biblical values are assumptions about the world. Right? This ecosystem. The, the, the assumption of the Bible is that Christians don't just emerge as completed prod, products um, automatically. You learn to think and feel and act in a Christian way through interaction in a Christian ecosystem, a gospel ecology. And so, as a family, Sunday morning is time for God. It's just a normal rhythm of our family life. Um, before the kids head out the door, we gather in the morning. Before kids and mom and dad and my, my wife works, we're all out the door. We hold hands, and it's harder now because boys with jobs and schedules that are different. But whoever's leaving at the same time, we hold hands and we say the Lord's Prayer together. We just, there's just that simple routine, you know. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Out the door. 
It's amazing how all the chatter around the breakfast table, or the non-chatter, because they're you know, brain dead, is, is in one way or another addressed. There's a sort of stage set for the day, a tone established, by just saying that prayer together. Some of my kids are nervous about tests as they head out the door. Well, we just prayed. We need bread from you, God. And if you can, you know, provide that, well, surely you can help me with my test. Some of my kids are nervous about, man, you know, what's going to happen today? Deliver us from evil. Lead us not into temptation. All those little, just that family structure that orients us to the worldview of the Bible in our family ecology. So, the word is sufficient to establish my parenting agenda. Get your kids in the Bible. Get them introduced to the Bible. Um, a lot of other practical things I guess I could say there. Tons of examples I could give of doing this badly. Um, jumping on my kids for not reading their Bibles. And I'm like, oh, that's a great way to inspire Bible reading desire. You know. Um, let's just talk about um, the Bible is sufficient to make me fit for the job. I want you to look at verse, f- verses 5 and 6. This is a huge task, tremendous calling, and uh, look at where it starts. Before you do any of that moral discourse or moral instruction, there needs to be moral modeling. Right? Look at verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. I think one of the main reasons I fail to help my kids find joy in God is that they notice that there's not always joy in God in me. Um, the, the, the model, you know, the model that we lay down for our kids is an integral part of this moral ecology of our home. Uh, and in fact, it's probably more than an integral part. It's the central part. Um, there was a study done, a Swiss study. This was 15 years ago or so, so who knows um, what has changed since then. But I don't think much would have changed. It's a telling study to my mind. Um, adult children who had Christian parents when they were growing up. Adult children, uh, they, they, the study wanted to measure what percent of adult children raised in a Christian home, are churchgoers themselves. Well, they found out that when mom and dad both went to church and all the kids you know, went with mom and dad, when those kids become adults, one-third of those children end up going to church themselves when they're adults. When just mom takes the kids, 2%. So from 33% when mom and dad go to 2% when just mom goes. The percent when just dad takes the kids to church is actually higher than when it's mom and dad. It's 44%. Which says what? That if only dad... It, it's, to my mind, it, now it's hard to know for certain what the motivations are and, and all uh, in, a, in a study like that. But when mom and dad both go to church, it's easy for dad to kind of ride along on mom's coattails, isn't it? Mom's the one that gets the kids up and we go to church and she establishes that priority and she's more spiritually inclined. And so it may be that when mom and dad both go, dad's perhaps not as vocal, not as connected, not as driven to do this. When just dad goes, it's clear dad is oriented toward God. And that impacts almost, you know, across the board, uh, the kids, and has such a dramatic influence on the children. 
Um, moral modeling, especially from dad, has a dramatic impact on the, on the hearts of the kids. But, but this is where I want to bring the gospel into this talk. Just Well, I mean, this whole thing is grounded in the truths of the gospel. But here's where I want to bring it in really directly. You will not be a perfect parent. God knows you're not a perfect parent. He doesn't expect you to be a perfect parent. That's why he gave you Jesus. Because he knows you fail as a parent. He knows that our sins in parenting seem to pile up and we just look at our children, we look at ourselves and go, how am I going to get anything good into that kid's life? God knew that before he gave you those children and then gave you that Savior who is more than sufficient. Your parenting sins and failures are no match, no match for the power of God and His grace through the gospel. So we come before our kids trying to do our best to introduce them to God through the Bible and trying to model love for God in our own lives, and we fail. And the very next thing we should model for our kids is what the gospel calls us to when we fail. Son, I lost my mind with you. No excuse for that. The last thing you need from me is for me to run you down and for me to lose my temper at you. And I'm so sorry that I was so harsh with you. I must have made you feel scared. I probably made you feel um, disrespectful toward me, like what's the matter with him? And tempted you to think thoughts that you don't want to think toward your dad. And I'm so sorry I put you in that spot. Which just makes me so glad all over again that Jesus died for sinners. And I've asked him to forgive me, and I need to ask you to forgive me. And then together, we're going to go back to God in prayer and just thank him that grace is available for sinners like us. And uh, me and you, kiddo, we're in the same boat. And uh, there's this great quote that I want to share with you from Gary Thomas's book, Sacred Parenting. God cares, quote, here it is, God cares so much about you that he's willing to risk letting you raise one, two, three, or even more of his precious children. He knows ahead of time you're going to make mistakes. He knows at the outset you won't be a perfect parent, but he is so zealous for your own growth that he's willing to take that risk. Scripture clearly states how zealously God guards these small people. Even so, he lets you take care of some of them. God adores your kids, but here's the thing. He's also crazy about you. End quote. That's a good word. We need to let the gospel minister to us. And know that we're loved, that we're forgiven, that we're a schmuck, but our future is incredibly bright because of Jesus. And we and our kids get in on that for free. That's good news. So the word is sufficient to make you what you need to be for this task. That's right in our passage. And then just last, real quickly, the word is sufficient to make them everything they should be. Look at these effects as you get the Bible into your kids. Uh, There are a couple of them in verse 2 and a couple of them in verse 3. Do you see those? What do you see in verse 2 will be the effects? They're both that clauses. That you may fear the Lord. That would be great to see that in the heart of our kid. What else in verse 2? That your days may be long. So there's the two from verse 2. And then there's two from verse 3. Right in the middle. That it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly. Yeah. So, the claim 
of this talk is expose your kids to the Bible and good things will happen. This text says they will fear the Lord as the Bible is impressed on them. Um, Their days will be long. It will go well with them and they will multiply greatly. Let's just real quickly orient ourselves to where we are in the Bible. We're in the Old Covenant where the promises are material, tangible, physical, and they're all meant as shadows and pointers. They're real and wonderful, but they're all shadows and pointers to something greater and more wonderful. So here are these offers. Uh, that you may fear the Lord, your days will be long, you will multiply, and it will go well with you. Essentially, what God was offering the people was a return to Eden. God dwelt in the Garden of Eden, and He walked with His people, and then He took up residence in Palestine, in this promised land. And that's what Joshua noticed. Joshua's you know, bringing the children of Israel into the promised land, and he meets the angel of the Lord, and, the, and he says, are you for us or for our enemies? And he says, neither. But as captain of the Lord's armies, I have come. What's the point? This is the dwelling place of God. You're coming into the promised land. This is where God dwells. And that's the promise for Israel. I will dwell with you. I will be your God. You will be my people. So what they're getting in all these great promises is God. God in their midst. And all these physical material things are signs and shadows and pointers to a greater reality that when you get to Ephesians 6 and Paul talks about parenting. Let's flip over there. He touches on these same promises But the whole flow of this book demonstrates that there's a different referent in view. There's a different goal, a different end game. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, for this is the first command with a promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Hey, there's our promise. There it is right there. And then he gives that same exhortation, essentially. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord bringing Deuteronomy 6 into the New Covenant as Ephesians 6. Well, what does it mean in the context of Ephesians and in all these epistles in the New Covenant? What does it mean to say it will go well with you and you will live long in the land? The land offered is the new heavens and the new earth where you live with God forever. The life you're offered is knowing God, John 17.3. This is life eternal, that they may know God and Jesus Christ whom you sent. In other words, what exposing our kids to the Bible through moral instruction and moral discourse and moral structures and moral modeling, what that's designed to accomplish in them is to deliver to them the life that is knowing God. That's what we want for our kids. And the Bible is sufficient to get that done. Bring them up in the nurture and instruction of the Lord. And children, your part is to obey and honor your parents so that you will live long and it will be well with you. You'll know God through the Bible. The Word is sufficient to give us our job, to make us sufficient for that job, and then to get into our kids everything that really needs to be there. Namely, the life of God in them. So, let me see if there's anything else. Um, uh, I think we have 10 minutes left. We're supposed to be done at 5 till. Let me say one quick thing about this. Um, 
and then, and then take time for questions. This point, the word is sufficient to get into our kids everything we want, points up the difference between what I want to call offensive parenting and defensive parenting. Defensive parenting kind of has this notion, this, this philosophy that you want to protect your kids from all the evil that is out there. I don't think that's a success. I don't think that's a commendable, as commendable as, as, as I don't think that's as easy a parenting philosophy to defend from the Bible as, as offensive parenting. Realize that the biggest enemy to your kid's spiritual survival is your kid's own unregenerate heart. That's the biggest problem. Which then means the thing they need most is that work of the Holy Spirit that regenerates them and makes all things new. When your kid is regenerated, all the rest of your parenting is mop-up. I mean, you're just basically, you know, influencing them to respond to what the Holy Spirit has already given them, the inclinations of their heart. And so that means what we want to be dialed in for in our kids' lives is, is fruit of regeneration. We want to look for change. A profession of faith is great, but what we really want to see is signs of life. Things like a hunger for the Word of God, the Holy Spirit inclines your heart to the the word and eagerness to submit to mom and dad and an interest in the community of God's people. And those are the signs that someone's regenerate. That's what we want to see in our kid's life. And the word can make that happen. So uh, just a word of caution about thinking that the main enemies are out there and I need to protect my kids from that. Uh, The main enemies are their own sinful nature. And when they're regenerate, God takes out that heart of stone and puts in a heart of flesh and all is made new. So it's a lot easier after that happens. All right, so that's what I want to say about that. Any comments or questions? Let's just open it up. Yeah. I love how many men have said, you know, there's nothing that we can do to cause God to love us less. There's nothing that we can do to God, God to love us more. It's, you know, parallel. There's, though we have responsibility seeking, as you're saying, to, to do better, to lead them better, God will, will make them despite us. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's always the one thing we have to keep in mind because we can really beat ourselves up and have, I mean, honestly, let Satan crush us beneath our guilt that would prevent us from getting back up and yeah. continuing on. Yeah. Yeah, I appreciate that. That's a good word. Uh, the thing I wish I would have done differently more than anything else is just lighten up mm-hmm. on myself and on my kids. God is at work. God loves them. He'll get the work done. And uh, I can relax a little. I think that's why it's easier to be a grandparent, I'm, I'm guessing, because you've just loosened up and you just know, well, I can't make the change. And you just embrace the kid in front of you, you know. So I wish I would have just lightened up on my kids and on myself because, you know, the God part of this picture is secure and certain, and that's the main part. Yeah. Anything else? Yeah. It's probably a silly question, but um, I, the past five months, I just recently be, went on staff at our church in the morning. Um, I'm the worship pastor there. What I'm finding is that with my worship team, same way I'm leading them or trying to shepherd them, the similar approaches I'll, I'll want to parent my kids. Is that a pretty kind of similar kind of thing? 
And then let me kind of elaborate yeah. a little bit. Just uh, you're talking about lighten up. I had a brother take me out to lunch. He's like, dude, you are uptight at rehearsal. You know, just like because it's easy. You have your plan. You have your own, your own yeah. way of how you want to do things. Yeah. And I'm learning more to humble myself. I've, I've had to go to my team and ask for forgiveness. Just like I didn't blow up, but things didn't go my way. And um, it's not what it's about. We're here to glorify the Lord today. And it's not about my philosophy, but... I was just curious because those have a correlation. Yeah, in that in that particular way, yeah, for certain. Um, even without blowing up, there can be a severity about us and a harshness that makes people go. And you want me to tap into whatever you're drinking, <laughs> and that's where I'll find life. You know, we don't ever want to carry ourselves that way when we lead. Yeah, kids or people or, or kids or people. <laughs> Yikes! Did I just say that? Kids or adults, yeah. yeah. Can you elaborate a little bit more about uh, what you just mentioned, looking for signs of life? I mean, obviously we want our kids to make a profession of faith, we want them to be saved, yeah. pray for them, pray for God to live in their life, and we want to encourage them if we see positive signs of that life. And, uh, is there, a, is there a, a caution about you know, them really relying on Christ and not our affirmation of them mm-hmm. or our opinion of them? Does that, does that mm-hmm. make sense? Yeah, yeah, I think Yeah, so in our own kids, we want to talk about, um, uh, we have talked with them about uh, how, the, uh, I, I will talk to them about regeneration, that this is not a persona that you adopt, it's an actual miracle that happens to you, and a change that is wrought in you, and if that change is there, there will be signs of that. Um, I, I, as soon as my kids can read, I will get them a Bible. And we get them a Bible that's in the New Living Translation because it's so readable and that's what we read as a family. I'm looking to find them reading their Bible. Uh, I'll get them a Bible reading plan. You know, Dad, I want to become a Christian. That's so wonderful. Or I became a Christian in Sunday school. I'm so glad. That's super exciting to me. Let's talk more about that as days go by, what it means, what it looks like. But, um, uh, you know, don't forget, you've got your own Bible. And just remind them of that and see then if their heart is leading them to read. One of my kids I was kind of disheartened by because I'm, I'm just not, not catching him reading his Bible. And then one day I just flipped through his Bible and it's all marked up. All sorts of stuff everywhere. That's a good sign. You know. Um, and then talk with them about baptism. But we don't baptize, I won't baptize my kids till they're at least old enough to demonstrate some ownership of their faith. And understanding of the faith is one thing, but you know, kids are so quick to affirm mom and dad's worldview and everything that I just want to wait till they're, you know, partway through high school, actually, in our family, to baptize them. I don't require that of families in the church, although uh, we're reluctant to baptize kids until we see, and their families see, signs of life. So eagerness to, it's First John, you know, how do you know you're a believer? Obedience to the word, uh, uh, <coughs> eager receptivity to the word, love for the brethren, um, uh, submission to God. Did I say that? Good, good works. Um, so we're looking for that. Oh yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. And that's where that moral discourse category is so important because we'll talk to them about things that happen in school um, and how a Christian would handle that. This is what this is what the Holy Spirit will make you do if you have Him. Um, 
that kind of stuff, yeah. What seriousness should we be seeking for for these signs? And I know in the context of church, um, would not want to give a wall to a to a someone who is not a member of the church, and where they actively display that they give the testimony publicly. But in a household, even the Christians, they also will not show a certain sign at a certain time, and and the kid is developing the house talking about you know, God, <laughs> because mm. he or she learned things in Sunday school. I mean, there will be, like, sometimes we'll see signs, sometimes we'll not see signs. Mm -hmm. As I will show a sign, and sometimes I will not show a sign. Mm -hmm. um, does it really matter at a certain, when, you know, at a certain age that, you know, we are really, really looking for these signs, and, and we are very skeptical about this, this confession, you know, or, or, you know, like, I personally tend to say, you know, I, I'm not in a rush of, mm -hmm. of you know, labeling, mm -hmm. you know, save and not save, um, but just communicating and accepting their words as such without having to make a judgment mm -hmm. on, 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 on what they say. So, again, I, I don't know. I mean, my, I mean, he's the oldest here, and he's... <laughs> Um, Feeling okay with your dad talking about you? Just, just that sometimes I'm talking to them. You know what God is that loves you. You know God will protect you. So sometimes I speak to them as they are believers, but I don't take necessarily for granted that is always that is true. And I know that because they are in my family, they are such. But it's really difficult for me to kind of like work with labels or signs and say, okay, this I will say to you, this I will not say to you. Mm -hmm. So I am just doing devotion or what we say about mm -hmm. dinner table, we just talk. Mm -hmm. And I just, you know, consider them as, you know, under God's care while they're here with me. But I don't know, I, I feel like it's hard to really like try to find these signs and then have that influence the way that I will, you know, interact with them. Yeah, I'm uh, not quite sure which piece of what all you said to address, but I will. The category, do I need to be able to say definitively, my kid is a Christian and I know it and I want to get him baptized right away. A lot of times that's more for the parent's reassurance than the kid. I'm not eager to definitively say, yes, I know for sure this kid of mine is a believer. Um, of course, I want to be able to say that. I look for fruit. But I, as, as an elder, I'm responsible to keep my kids faithful and obedient and manage them. And so even our 19-year-old is still at our home, and he's under our authority. Um, and, 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 and yet, I will often say to them, this is, this is Christian kind of behavior. We're waltz. My, my kids, for a long time, my kids used to be like, oh, Dad. All my kids have smartphones, you know, and I'm like, you're waltz boys. We do it different just because we're waltz boys. That was sort of one of our family structures. That was a saying. That was... And um, similarly, I will say to them, you know, uh, a Christian behaves like this. Not assuming they are one or whatever, but you, you live like a Christian the same way you become a Christian, namely by faith in the truth of God and repentance toward the attitudes that are natural to you. 
Faith and repentance is what saves you. Faith and repentance is what grows you. And you approach every moment in the Christian life that way. So I'll often just define for them. This is what repentance would look like in this moment because I know what you're thinking or feeling or what you've done. And here's how faith-filled behavior looks in this moment. And just expect that of them and call them to that. Um, I had an interesting incident where one of my boys, <laughs> uh, Douglas County Sheriff's deputies showed up at our house. And then and nobody was home except my second son. And he calls me, hey, Dad, there's some cops here. And I'm a chaplain with the police department. So I thought, oh, maybe they're friends of mine. They're coming to... And it wasn't. It was the county you know, department, and they had cops come. And they're, hey, Mr. Waltz, yeah, um, so we got an anonymous tip that one of your sons made a threat against the high school. And I'm like, wow, okay, I'll be right there. So come to the house, and they meet with this, you know, one of my sons. And somebody texted in a threat or, or a... a a remark that he had made that they took as a threat. And uh, as I talked with him, and as they talked with him, and, and whatever, turns out that it wasn't at all, and they were convinced that it wasn't. But I said to him after the fact, um, so you know where those comments were made, which means you know who heard you, which means you know who are the options for who texted in the anonymous tip. Do you think you know specifically who did it? He goes, oh yeah. I said, so what's your plan? And he goes, I could see his jaw tighten. Not sure. Do you know when you're going to see him again? Yep. Well, um, I have a suggestion. Here's what a Christian would do. A Christian would go before that group and say, hey, um, I made some comments a week ago or whenever it was that I'm sure made some of you feel really uncomfortable. And... First of all, I want you to know, I didn't mean them as a threat against the school. I was, you know, blah, 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 and explain yourself. And then just go, and I'm really sorry that some, you know, that, that some of you might have really taken that the wrong way. And not, not that, that sounds like such a bad apology. I don't remember how I worded it for him, but it was better than that. I'm like, you just go to these kids and you own this. And then that particular kid, first chance you get, you do something nice for him. You overcome evil with good, not overcome evil with evil. That's how a Christian would behave. And he goes... Yeah, I was kind of thinking I should do something like that. You know. So just holding them to that standard, which is a life of faith and a life of repentance. And I said, how do you want to act? And he goes, I want to go you know, throw down on him. And I'm like, I understand. Do you think you could? <laughs> yeah. He's, you know, my kid's big athlete. and that's, so, so repent of that attitude and act in faith and uh, treat him with love and kindness. So I just hold them to that standard and then let God filter out what category they're in and it, the truth will show itself. So, Joan, you had a question real quick? Yeah, I just wanted to ask. Uh, so being in ministry, there's a certain pressure that comes along with being the public family or the pastoral family. Yeah. How have you tried to protect your kids from that? I have to behave a certain way because dad's the pastor. Yeah. So first thing I tried to do was not get into the ministry. I'm not joking. I just, I was like, I'm not putting my kids through that. So that ship sailed for me and for you. So now what do you do? <laughs> um, I st- I, what do you do? Duane, I'm probably not the best person to answer this question because I serve a church that is so gracious about this. They're really charitable toward my kids and my family. Uh, you'd need to talk to somebody who's in a church where it's a little harder and the expectations are higher and they've had to deal with it. Um, in our household, I can tell you, we just... 
hold out before the kids the expectations of the gospel. Not a higher set of expectations because my reputation is invested in how you behave. Don't ever talk like that. That's crazy talk. How they behave has essentially nothing to do with me. it, it, It does in that one qualification in Titus chapter 1. But that's on me, not on them. If they behave well, that's by God's grace. And uh, so don't, don't lay that on them. You know, make sure you... Like, like, like one of my oldest kid plays the drums in our band, and he wears his hat backwards and chews gum. And that really frustrates some of the people in our church family. And I'm just like, you know what? He gets up every Sunday before most of the rest of us. He's here rehearsing. He's here during the week rehearsing. He does this out of his, you know, his heart, his love for the church family. And um, does he need to become more aware of how love interacts in a big community like this with older people who are offended by wearing a hat in the building? Yeah. But I'm going to let the Holy Spirit work on him in that area. I'm just not going to make my kid conform to, to your expectation. So just, you know, not, not, I haven't had those talks very often, but... They need to be had, and I'll certainly let my kid know, hey, good job in the band today. Really appreciated what you did. Rather than, hey, why are you chewing gum all the time? I don't got gum in my mouth right now. I chew gum when I preach. And some people find that disrespectful. So I'm not going to hold my kid to a weird standard that I won't conform to. But ask somebody else. I have such a good church family. They're so kind. Yeah. Seriously, I have said that. It would be an expression of uncare if I just talk to you after the meeting with speaker's breath. So, anyway. My, my dad, I mean, sort of with, with, your, with what you said, I'm a pastor's kid, and my dad went through some tough stuff with some of the members of the church. Mm. Um, people leaving. People, and to this day, I don't know anybody. Mm. He kept us... Mm, shielded from that. Yeah, it's almost like he kept us separate from work, if you want to call it that. Like he was like, yeah. And, and I know a lot of it was directed towards me and my brother and my family, but it was, yeah. he, he did a good job. And do you want to understand, I, I, don't just, I don't just say to this lady, hey, he's a great kid, get off his back. That, that could have been the upshot of what I just summarized for you. I, I'm you know, wanting to say, listen, I appreciate where you're coming from, and what I want you to know about the heart of this kid is some of these things. Yeah. So that's not important to me, that he's not chewing gum. I mean, we have an elder who wears a hat backwards in the auditorium. So I'm like, why are we going to hold my kid and not him? And so gentle grace, you know. And just, so. I know it's time's up, but any quick suggestions to help four-year-olds learn Bible reading? Yeah, heck yeah. Um, can, can he read or she? Uh, no, I'm talking about your family devotional time. Oh, what you should read? Yeah. At that age, we were reading those narratives from the Old Testament. We were just reading those. Just read right through those. And don't do anything elaborate. Read a chapter, pray, and we're done. And if it's super long, read half the chapter. And then, you know, have your wife hold the kid on his lap and, you know, stuff like that. You're training him to sit before the Word of God. So it's important and valuable. All of those other books are excellent. You know, the Big Picture Story Bible and the Jesus Story Bible and all those other. Those are excellent. And use them as secondary resources. Expose kids to the words of the Bible. That's what I would say. I tried a bunch of different stuff, and it never worked as great as just simply reading the Bible and praying. I bought curriculum, Sunday school curriculum. I would prepare and teach my kids. And none of it worked. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I have the New City Catechism on my phone, and we'll occasionally go over it in dinner time as a family. And you can get the New City Catechism book. All of those are great. Um, but the but the Word of God is is the power, you know. And so, don't skip that because um, it's easier to acclimate them to right now if it's part of their norm. If it's in the ecology of the household that we read the Bible together as a family, that's just normal for them. So I would say do that, and we did. It's doable. A little harder for. Yeah, good question. Okay, so first of all, thanks for coming to this session. Thanks for saying that. Thanks for having that heart. That will go a long way, just that heart with your family, and the Lord honors that. So don't show up in your household and go, hey, we're going to do a new thing because I got spiritual. You show up and you go, you know what, guys? There's something super important that we should have been doing as a family, and I haven't, and it might take us a while to get into the groove, but we're going to try this. I'm sorry we haven't been doing this before. And you just be that the way you are here with them. The other thing I would say is anchor your time in the Word to a regular event in your day. If we don't do that, we don't do the Word. So everybody gets up and has breakfast, and then we read the Bible. That's what we did for a long time. Now it's after dinner. Whatever in your day is a fixed point, hook your Bible reading to it, and and days that you don't do it, don't beat yourself up. Just do it again the next day, you know? So I'd say those two things, yeah. I, I just want to add one thing. I know the time is up. Um, but one, the reality is that even for those who have been doing it for a while, it's not always easy to do it. Sometimes Correct. you have it like in the chaotic days, and then, you know, sometimes it just doesn't work. So it's encouraging to know that the, the intent is to really try every time and Never give up. Even if it's five minutes, yep. you can have just yep. take the five minutes. Yep. Tomorrow you can have ten minutes, but you know, I think the idea here is to instill that as something that we do. Yep. It may take longer than, uh, than others, but we just can keep to do it. Yep. And, and don't feel like you need to have a big thing prepared. I'm going to make a big insightful comment. I'm going to apply this to your life. Let God's Spirit use the Word and just tell the kids. I'm just going to read the Bible. Not going to be long. So 12 and 7? Yeah, 12, 10, 7. Yeah, we were reading Proverbs by that age. And so Proverbs are quick, pithy, accessible, and you read half a proverb and you take the date. So today's the, what, fourth? You read, go home, read Proverbs 4 after dinner. Or maybe you read half of it. 31 31 verses, so you go, okay, I'm going to read 15 of these. Hey guys, just want to read the Bible together. If you find something interesting that you want to say, go ahead, but otherwise I'm just going to read the Bible and pray. 15 verses, bang, done. Yeah. Last, last remark. Yeah, just, I was just say, my oldest is almost 15, and looking back, when I'm serious about seeking after God, my, my family falls. Yep. And so I think that's a huge part of it, us telling them what to do, suggesting them what to do. If we're not doing it, they're not doing it, or they're just going through the motions. Yeah. So I think that's 
a big part too. If we're sincere, they yeah. will see that. And when I'm sincere, my wife it gets more sincere. Yeah. And the kids get more sincere. Yeah. This word that I command you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children. Yeah. Father, I pray that you would own the hearts of our kids and that you would work in spite of us and work through us and inspire us. I pray that our wives would be supportive and encouraging and that they would love what they see in these failing efforts from their husbands. I pray that you would keep us um, convinced that this is life, that this word is life. And... Uh, that you would do far more than we could ask or even imagine through our feeble efforts to disciple our children for you. Thanks for them. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I think it's time for lunch.